right, well, good morning. Welcome to a Gateway. Welcome to Palm Sunday. Time is flying by. Welcome to Third Winter. Uh, I think <clears throat> I was with Steve at that conference, and we drove through Rock Hill, uh, from Rock Hill, uh, Fort Mill area, through uh, Flat Top. Anybody knows Flat Top is the worst place uh, around here other than Pocahontas County. It was a blizzard yesterday, <clears throat> so we started to turn around and go back. I'm glad you're here. Uh, we're in the third week of our series, The Road to Redemption, and everybody needs to be on that road. We all need to be redeemed. You know, today's message uh, and all these messages kind of focus on Peter, but it's not just Peter we're talking about. It's how the life of Christ changed Peter. And when you think about uh, when you think about Jesus, you think about the transformation. And I think everybody likes the story of transformation. You know, when we were kids. We watched movies about a young girl who's been orphaned and treated like a servant, and then she becomes, you know, the princess of the entire land. There's so many stories of of transformation where we just we we watch it in anticipation, knowing that they're going to become something great, something wonderful. At Christmas, we like the Scrooge movie, you know, where he's changed by the ghosts of Christmas. Even in nature, we see transformation, don't we? This time of year, we're watching tadpoles become frogs and caterpillars become butterflies and, uh, you know, winter becomes spring, uh, grass gets green, and that's pretty for a little while, isn't it? And then we get tired of that uh, because we have to keep mowing it. And there's so much transformation all around us. God made the world to be a world of transformation. TV commercials run off of this idea of transformation. You've got a guy who's got yellow stained teeth. He uses this product for six weeks, and then he's got pearly whites. <clears throat> you see a picture of someone, uh, you know, before they went on this diet plan, and then after, you're like, wow, I need to do that. Uh, and, and, you know, you see so much of this out in our, our culture. And we, we kind of like this because this is, this is what we can become. We can become something better. So this word transformation is our subject today when we talk about the life of Peter and really the life of Jesus as it impacted Peter. Transformation. Jesus never left anybody quite the same, did he? He never left anybody the same. You you think about the people that he touched in his ministry. Some people he left healthier. Some people he left happier. Some people he left more hopeful. Some people were cleansed of their sin. Some were able to walk again. Some were able to see. Some were able to hear. Most all of them were challenged in their faith. And not only did he transform people for the better, but Jesus left some people and they walked away for the worse. Look at the rich young ruler had this exchange with, exchange with Jesus, and he went away frustrated, didn't he, and sad. That was his choice to do that. And you think of Judas, who spent all that time with Jesus, like the other disciples, but Judas ended up leaving Jesus frustrated and unrepentant. And not only did he not leave people the same, he didn't leave communities. You think about the woman at the well, the woman of Sychar, 
when Jesus had that exchange with her, she went and told the whole town, come see a man, come meet a man who told me all about myself. And the whole town came to be believers. Or the widow of Nain, where she was going out to a funeral with her son, Jesus stopped his procession to meet that funeral procession. And, and what we had after that is a celebration and no doubt changed a whole lot of people. There's so much that we could talk about, uh, you know, about Jesus and the transformation that took place when he got there and after he left. Storms were stilled at the command of his voice. Hungry crowds were uh, left full uh, by the transformation of a little bit of bread and fish to an entire meal. Sins were forgiven. Death and the grave were conquered. There's Again, so much we could talk about, and we'll save some for next week, Easter Sunday. So in this week, week three of this series, we're going to go five weeks. We'll go through Easter and then the following week, and we're really focusing not just on Peter, but how the life of Jesus changed Peter. And so uh, today, let's look at, uh, at this man, Peter. You know, we've said that we are drawn to Peter because of, he's a lot like us, because of his incredible feats of, uh, of, of um, heroics, we could say, you know, the things that he did that were like, yeah, go Peter. You know, he walked on water, he, he made the confession of Christ, he preached the first message. There's so many things we could point to and say, I want to be like Peter because of that. But we are like Peter, more likely because of his blunders. You know, Peter stuck his foot in his mouth. Peter, he, he, he did things he shouldn't have done. He, uh, you know, he denied Jesus. We talked about that last week. And, uh, and you know, Peter, at the, even at the end of his life, he's still struggling with these battles. The apostle Paul said in Galatians 1 that he had to confront Peter to his face about Peter's prejudice against the Gentiles. So these, the, these things about Peter, you know, it's like all the way to the very end, he's up and he's down. But as he's going up and down, he's, he's getting better and better and better. And so when we talk about the transformation of Peter, we have to start right there in John chapter 1. You remember when Peter first met Jesus? Peter, um, his brother Andrew had seen Jesus teaching somewhere, and he and his friend were convinced that Jesus was the Messiah. So he runs back to his brother because, you know, Peter in any relationship was kind of the dominant person. He had that personality. So Andrew said, I got to tell my brother Peter. He goes back to Peter and he says, we have found the Messiah. We know it's him. Peter said, yeah, right. You're right. Then he said, now come and meet him. And so Andrew took Peter to meet Jesus. And the Bible says in John 1, 42, Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which means Peter. Now, in footnotes, you'll see that the word Cephas, in the footnotes of your Bible, most Bibles, is Aramaic, and Peter is Greek, and both of these words mean one thing. You remember what they mean? Rock. So, I mean, they might have called, if he lived today, might have called him Rocky, if Peter was Rocky. Now, at this point in Peter's Character in this point in his life, he, his life was anything but a rock. He was more like a leaf blowing in the wind. For instance, in John chapter 13, you know, John 13 is the chapter that leads up to the crucifixion and the resurrection. In John 13, there's a scene in the, in the upper room on the Thursday night before Good Friday. 
You remember this scene there, eating supper there. This is the Last Supper. And in Middle Eastern and Far Eastern cultures, even today, I experienced this when I was in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, the, oftentimes they'll, they'll put food out on the floor on a blanket or a spread of some kind, and then they'll get down on their knees or across their legs, or they'll kind of recline on their side, and that's the way they eat. Now, this is, this is typical because, uh, you know, families over there didn't have all this furniture and chairs and nice tables and that kind of thing. So this was typical. They were, they were probably reclining. They had just eaten here in John 13, so they were full. <clears throat> and because they were reclining, their feet were exposed, and they were wearing sandals. You know, maybe they kicked them off at the door, and uh, their feet were exposed. So after the supper, the Bible says Jesus went over and he took a towel, and he took a basin, and he poured water in it, and he, he went and started washing their feet. Now, foot washing was a common practice in the first century. A common practice in the first century, and, uh, and sometimes today, you know, you might witness a foot washing at a wedding. I've done some weddings or seen some weddings where that was done. Or uh, maybe there's a whole service. There are churches who practice foot washing uh, pretty frequently, and it is a, uh, it's an act of humility, it's an act of humility. It's an act of, of, of being humble that I'm going to wash your feet. And it might be a, a, an act of humiliation for the one being washed. I mean, look at your feet now. I mean, I know you got those toenails that roll over. You got that toe crud in there. And uh, your feet might stink. And somebody to get down and to wash your feet. That'd be, that would be kind of humiliating for you, but it's a, it was a common act. You know, and in the first century, the person that would wash the feet would either be the wife of the host or a servant in the house. And it was typically done when you came in the door. So you would come in, there at the door, there's a basin of water and a towel, and as you came in the door, it's like, I'll take your coat and I'll wash your feet because, uh, you know, we don't, we, we don't want your, we don't want your, dirty feet all over the house, but it's, it's more of, we're not going to get all the dirt off. It's, it's an act of generosity, and it's an act of gratitude, and it's, act, it's an act of humility. Come into our home, wash your feet, go sit down and enjoy a meal. Well, there was no host in this room because uh, this was the upper room, and Jesus was the only host. So when Jesus began washing the feet of the disciples, I think it would have been total shock. It's like whispering to one another, what? is he doing what is he doing he's he can't be doing this he's the lord and notice that in the text in john 13 nobody says anything nobody says anything until he gets to peter because they're all probably in shock i don't know if peter was first or peter was fifth or peter peter was 10th or whatever but when he gets to peter peter you know peter he's going to say something and so the bible says he came to simon peter said to him and you got to hear Peter's tone here. Lord, come on. Do you wash my feet? No. That no is implied there. Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, for a- but afterward you will understand. Peter's going to understand a whole lot more afterward. Peter said to him, no. Again, that's implied. You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Well, that hit Peter right between the eyes. He said, 
Then, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Now, if I was, if I was translating this, I would have Jesus saying, come on, Peter, you don't need a bath. I'm talking about spiritual terms here. And can you see Peter scratching his head saying, I don't know what's going on here. What's he talking about? Is this the man who's going to lead us to victory over Rome? Is this the Messiah that's, that's come to, to restore the place of Israel in the world? You know, he's the Messiah. He's of David's line, and David was a king like no other. He put us on the map. And how is my king here stooping down, washing dirty, stinky feet of his followers? I mean, if we're the least, what does that make him? Of course, you and I know today, that was the mentality of Jesus. That's the values of the kingdom. The great shall be the the least, and the least shall be the great. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. So Peter was scratching his head, and, um, uh, you know, I think there were a lot of times when he didn't get it. No wonder Peter sank when he tried to walk on water. His name was Rock. I mean, if his name had been Bob or Corky, he might not have sank, huh? But Jesus named him Peter for a reason. It, it wasn't because of what he was, but by God's grace, what he would become. I love that old saying, I'm not what I ought to be, and I'm not what I'm going to be. But thank God, I'm not what I used to be. I'm not what I used to be. You know, we've all got some transforming to, to do, don't we? We've all got some growing to do. We're a lot like Peter in that sense. Peter had a ways to go, and there's none of us who are where we ought to be. We, ought, we got a ways to go. You know, look at our emotions. One day we, we're happy. The next day someone upsets us, hurts our feelings, so we get angry at the world and go pout. Our faith fluctuates and is inconsistent. When, one day we're sharing our testimony, and then the next day something bad happens in our life, and we're, we question the very existence of God. Our behavior is inconsistent. One day we resist temptation, and the next day we're, we're in it with both feet. Our personalities can be inconsistent. You know, they say every personality has a strong side and a weak side, and the idea is to maximize your strengths and to minimize and eliminate your weaknesses. But too often you and I find, you know, we're working on this, but then all of a sudden, boom, our weaknesses stick their head up, and we, here we are right in the middle, and we're just like a pinball being bounced back and forth. And that's our life. That's our life. I like what Edward Sanford Martin wrote in his poem, Legion. Within my earthly temple, there's a crowd. There's one of us that's humble and one of us that's proud. There's one that's brokenhearted for his sins and one who sits unrepentant and just grins. There's one who'd love his neighbor as himself and one who cares for naught but fame and self. For much corroding care, I would be free if once I could determine which one is really me. And that's us, isn't it? Peter must have felt like that, I, I think, many times in his life. He's like, why did I say that? Has anybody ever done that? Stupid, why did I say that? 
especially when it comes to, you know, your, like your relationships, your marriage or something. It's like, you dummy, don't do that again. And we struggle with this our entire lives. But we get better as we go. I think there are four events in Peter's life that helped transform him into the rock that Jesus knew he would become. The first is his close friendship with Jesus. <clears throat> you know, there's no doubt when you study the Scripture that uh, Peter was like a personal project of Jesus. He's like a personal project. And, and uh, there's more, if you, if you study this, there's more interaction between Jesus and Peter than any other disciple. There's more personal interaction, more words to Peter from Jesus than there, than there is any other disciple. So it was almost like Jesus, you know, he, he saw Peter, he knew what Peter could become, and he's going to spend a little bit of extra time. You know, there was the dazzling dozen, I call them, the 12. Then there was the big three, the inner circle. And that was James and John and Peter. So it's almost like Jesus said, you know, well, I'm going to train and mentor all of you, but I got a special job for you. And I got to make sure you get it. I got to make sure you get it. And not only did he have more interactions, but think of the times where Jesus rebuked Peter, where he had to set him straight. And that's really, uh, that's really what, like a good parent, isn't it? A good parent does this. If you, wanna, if you want to raise a child, especially today, but in all times, you've got to use a little bit of rebuke, don't you? And some would call that the switch or the paddle or the, you know, uh, spare the rod, spoil the child. But whatever it is, you know, you, I'm, not, I'm not advocating uh, any, for anything except for uh, being a good parent. And sometimes that means calling your child down. In fact, the, the other end of that is if you, if you let your five-year-old decide what he's going to be and what he's going to do and what she's gonna, how she's going to act... If that's the way you parent and you're like, oh, this is what's called free-range parenting. You know what that's called? It's not called parenting. It's called monster making. Yeah, you can make a monster. And uh, if you think they're hard to handle when they're six, you wait till they're 16. And you got your hands full. Are you with me, parents? You got to use some rebuke and you got to use some correction. You got to use some challenge and accountability. And that's what Jesus did for Peter. <clears throat> Let's listen to these listen to these times when Jesus had to put Peter back in line. He said, "Get behind me, Satan." Called Peter Satan. We read about that a week or so ago. "You are a hindrance to me for you're not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man." Or how about this one? "No, Peter, don't forgive your brother." just seven times forgive him 77 times or some versions say 70 times seven or how about this one simon satan has asked for you to have you to sift you like wheat but i've prayed for you or how about this one what we just read john 13 peter if i don't wash your feet then you have no part in me understand this or how about this one peter you're talking big you say you're going to die with me but i'm going to tell you before the rooster crows tomorrow you're going to deny me three times or how about this one put your sword away peter come on if you live by the sword you die by the sword 
Or maybe you remember this one at the end of John's gospel where Peter's trying to negotiate some kind of a position with, with uh, Jesus or a long life. And, and he says, what about him? Pointing to John. And Jesus said, Peter, take a deep breath. This is my paraphrase. If I want John to live to be an old, old man till I return, that's none of your business. You follow me. You follow me. And so there's all these exchanges of Jesus shaping and chiseling and molding Peter into something. And, you know, I think Jesus understood Peter's personality better than anybody. He created it. And that's for you and for me. We have to understand our child. You know, we had, a, we had our, our oldest daughter, uh, you know, we could, we could uh, spank her until we were tired. And she just, you know, buckled down and dared you to do it again. And then our second child, we just kind of looked at with the side eye, and she'd go to her corner bawling. You know what I mean? So you gotta, you got to know your child, know that personality, know what they need in order to help them develop. Now, we're going to talk about parenting in uh, several weeks in our next series. But this is, this is what Jesus did for Peter. And, and I, I want to say that even though we don't have the privilege of having Jesus in the flesh here today, we can spend time with Jesus and get close to Jesus. We can let him shape our character. How do we do that? Well, just start reading his word. Read it honestly. Read it openly that it might come into your life. And not only read it, but get with other people who are reading it. Get some accountability in your life. If you're above accountability, then, then uh, who, who are you? Who do you think you are? And none of us are where we ought to be. All of us need a little correcting and rebuking and exhorting and encouraging, don't we? So spend, with time, spend time with Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and, and uh, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. I love that prayer that we shared uh, several series ago. Dear Lord, three things I pray help me to see you more clearly, to love you more dearly, and follow you uh, more nearly. And so spend time with Jesus. That's what transformed Peter. Second event that happened in his life was his quick admission of failure. Yeah, let's be honest. You and I are slow to say those words that our wife wants to hear. Come on. Let's practice it, all right? Just three words, guys. Help me out here. I was wrong. I am Sorry. Please forgive me. I love you. Those are the 12 words that will save your marriage. They'll save your marriage. They'll make a great marriage. And when you get to the last one, I love you, you make sure to put the you, 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 you in that. I love you. Get up real close when you do that. Why are we so slow to say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Please forgive me. I love you. Because we have this prideful nature about us. We, we don't think we are wrong. Preacher, are you saying apologize even when I'm not wrong? Yes, because you probably were wrong the last time. You're going to be wrong the next time. Get ahead of the game. Maybe she'll give you some bonus points, some credit. If she's wrong, you tell her you were wrong. Have you seen that commercial today where they pull up to the stop sign and they, nobody will go? It's because, oh, we appreciate you, and I appreciate your appreciation of me. And, 
and uh, you go first. You know, you've seen that. If you haven't, you'll see it soon. Peter had a quick admission of failure. He was quick to say, I, I was wrong here. I was wrong. He, he, was, a, he, was, a, he was a man of, of uh, fort, intestinal fortitude. He was a man of quick action, but he's also a man who was quick to say, I'm sorry. For instance, uh, last week we saw him in the garden. You know, it was, a, it was a couple hours. This denial took place over a few hours, I think, in the courtyard as he, as he made his way in and was challenged at the gate, and then he was around the fire, and then it was later in the morning. And then, but when his eyes locked onto Jesus' eyes early in the morning as they were taking him through the courtyard, it, it struck Peter right between the eyes, and he said, oh, man, I was wrong. I was wrong. And those eyes just reminded me. I was wrong. And I like the story in Luke chapter 5. You know, Jesus was teaching in Luke 5, and, and the people, he didn't have a sound system, so they were squeezing in and pushing in, and Jesus was backing up, teaching, and he was backing up, and finally his ankles started getting wet, and he's like, man, I'm standing in the water here. Waves are coming up here. So he saw Peter and his companions coming in from fishing all night, and he, he said, hey, come on in here. I need to use your boat as a platform so he got back on that platform and he began to teach the people and finally he wrapped up he wrapped up the teaching and he said hey guys let's go let's go fish peter said lord we've been fishing all night he said i know but just uh humor me here let's go fish and let's put the net down over there peter said lord we've fished that spot already we've we got the nets folded up they're ready to put away come on jesus said come on peter let's do it Peter said, for you, I'll do it. Now, that wasn't the whole exchange. You can read this for yourself. And you remember what happened. They put the nets out and started pulling them in, and they're full of fish. They're so full that Peter yells for James and John in their boat and said, hey, come on over here. There's the, this is where the fish have been all night. They're right here. And so they came in, and they put their nets down and got so much fish. The Bible says that both boats were beginning to sink. And in the middle of that, the Bible says when Simon Peter saw it, he fell at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. It was pretty quick, wasn't it? I mean, the boats weren't even, the fish were still flopping. And Peter said, Lord, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I was, there, it was a moment of physical exhaustion, I think, and, and emotional distrust and spiritual weakness from Peter, but his repentance and admission of failure was quick to come. He didn't try to rationalize his behavior and say, but Lord, I you know, was tired. And we try to rationalize our behavior. Oh, I was just so tired. I'm sorry I chewed you out last night. I was just tired, so you'll have to forgive me for that. Or, uh, you know, this is the way my dad was, and it's just the way I am. You need to accept me the way I am. This is the language I use. This is how I react. Or, uh, you know, whatever, it's my parents' fault, my grandparents' fault, or it's the culture. We've got to stop blaming the culture, don't we? Peter didn't rationalize, and we can't rationalize. He took ownership. We've got to stop blaming our personality or our parents. We've got to stop blaming our circumstances or uh, our environment, our culture. In fact, I told the first service, the worse the culture gets, the darker it becomes, the easier it is to be able to tell who's living for Christ and who's not. You know what I mean, don't you? The darker it gets, the light shines brighter. Stop blaming and say, here's an opportunity. Here's an opportunity. The days are evil. I'm going to show people what right looks like. I need to show them what Jesus would do in this situation. 
See it as an opportunity. I don't want the culture to get dark, but let me tell you something. The prince of this world is taking the culture down with him. And uh, do whatever we can, but we're not, we're not called to, um, uh, you know, to uh, win the devil. I, I know you, you may be rationalizing this and thinking about this. We're called to live as lights in a crooked and perverse world. The devil made his choice. He can't repent. He made his choice, and he wants to take as many down with him as he can. You stand out. You be different. Be quick to admit, Lord, I'm a sinner. I need some help. The third thing that helped Peter was his assignment after the resurrection. Now, we're going to look at this next week in a little more detail when we talk about the restoration of Peter but you remember this scene in, um, in the Gospels, especially the Gospel of John, when after the resurrection, they went out to fish, and then they, as they're coming in, this is a different, different scene, by the way, than the one we just talked about in Luke 5. That was before the resurrection and the crucifixion. This is after the resurrection. They're coming in, and they, John says, there's Jesus. Peter says, where? He puts his cloak on and jumps into the water and wades up to, the, to Jesus, and they have some breakfast. Jesus has breakfast for them. And this is where, after they ate, Jesus is going to reinstate Peter. Remember this? He asked him, he said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Remember this? It was three times he asked him. Now, there's some play on words here we may talk about next week. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? The third time, Peter was grieved, the Bible says, and he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And I think Jesus had his attention here, and he said, something that Peter might have missed the first two times. All right, then, you feed my sheep. You feed my sheep. In other words, i got a job for you to do, Peter, and it's going to be a tough job, but you're up for it. And it's going to take the rest of your life and all of your attention. It's going to take some time. It's going to, it's going to, it's going to take some, uh, some intestinal fortitude. It's going to take some put, keeping your nose to the grindstone. It's going to take your very life. But if you'll give your life to that, you'll become the rock that I've called you to be. Someone said, you make a living by what you get, but you make a life by what you give. It's, it's time for us in the church to stop asking, what can I get? And what, let's say, what can I give? You know, one of the preacher's biggest pet peeves is to have to stand up in front of a congregation and say, we need volunteers. After a repeated ask, you know, I'm not talking about the first time. I'm talking about we still have openings. We ought to be a church. We ought to be a people that says, hey, sign me up. I want to give something. I don't want to just be a taker. I don't want to come just on Sunday morning and critique the worship and critique the message and see what I can get out of it for me and what's in this for me. No. I want to follow Jesus. I want to give something. I want to, I want to sweat. I want to bleed. I want to, I want to be inconvenienced. I need to sacrifice a little bit. You know, we recently hired John Tracy uh, as our executive minister, you know, with, uh, with four campuses and our, uh, our daycare, which is a huge uh, operation, our recovery ministry, our Haiti mission, some would call a fifth campus. Uh, there's a lot of administrative details. And so John uh, is in that job. And John has a response to me that is my favorite response now. 
And I think it ought to be your response and my response. I'll come in maybe on Monday morning and I'll be complaining about something or say, we need to do this, we need to do that. Or did you talk to so-and-so or has this? John will say, I'll take care of it. I'll take care of it. I love that. I'll take care of it. I'm like, yeah, all right, all right. I'll go do what I'm supposed to be doing. Wouldn't it be great if when someone stood up in front of a church and said, hey, we, we need to go serve and the, we have this project and we have this and we're going to do this. If the whole church would say, we'll take care of it. We'll take care of it. Because that's who we are. That's our assignment. That's our assignment to give. I'm not talking about money here. I'm talking about of yourself. Give of yourself. That's your assignment. How about this line from that old song? Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. One final event that helped transform Peter was the filling of the Holy Spirit. We can't overlook this. You know, we can try as hard as we want to. We can do what we want to do. But without the filling of the Holy Spirit, without the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, we're just, you know, we're just beaten in the, in the, in the wind. After the ascension of Jesus into heaven, the disciples all gathered back in the upper room. And Acts 1.15 says that Peter stood up and led the group in the choosing of the Judas's replacement. And then in Acts chapter 2, the Bible says, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house when they were sitting, and divided tongues, or cloven tongues, or split tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, this is exactly what Jesus had promised right before his ascension when he said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses in, in, in Judea, Jerusalem, and Jerusalem, Judea, and, and the other ends of the earth, Samaria. And the filling of the Holy Spirit here caused him to speak other languages. We know it was languages because down in verses 7 and 8, the people said, are not all these who are speaking Galilean? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Now, this Greek phrase here, native language, is so specific that it was not just in their language, but it was in their regional dialect. So if you and I had been there, we'd have heard, Jiget, Mama Nim are coming, and is anybody understanding me here, by the way? Y'all hungry? All this, you know, we would have heard it in hillbilly English. We would have heard it in our language. Not just our language, but our dialect. They said, How is it that these unschooled, unordinary men are speaking to us? so fluently in our own dialect. What's going on here? This, by the way, is why, and again, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings here, okay? I'm not out to, to uh, point out any, anybody's uh, preferences or hurt your feelings, but this is why we don't use the King James Version to preach from. You know, some people love the King James. I grew up on the King James I grew up on it, and some of ye did as well. We did. But let's be honest, this is not the way we speak today. This passage proves to me that God is not interested in us hearing 
his word in some language that is unfamiliar with us, to us, but in a language that we can understand. We can fully understand it. Now, I'm not, I'm not disparaging the King James. I love it. If you can understand it, that's good, but chances are your lost friends cannot. And besides, if you want to live and die by the King James Version, you need to go back and get the King James Version because we ha- what we have is not the King James Version. The 1611 King James Version is unreadable by you and I. Just Google that. We use, I'll tell you what I prefer is the New American Standard 1995 version. That's my preference because it's a word-for-word translation. I, you know, I took Greek and have a master's degree in, in Greek, New Testament Greek. It's a word-for-word translation, but it's a little clunky. We used to use the NIV, but the NIV is... You can't get the original NIV in 1972. Now you've got to get the modern version, and it's what's called gender neutral. So instead of saying he, where the Bible says he, it says they. And there are other disappointing passages in the NIV, so we stopped using that. Uh, we've used the ESV now, the English Standard Version. It's more word for word and thought for thought. Now, that's, this is all kind of parenthetical, but what, the reason I'm telling you this is you need to get God's Word where you can understand it and where you can share it with somebody else. There are still verses of the Bible I remembered in the King James. I've still got them in my head, and that's okay. But if I throw that out to my lost friends, they're going to be like, what does ye mean? Or what, what does thou mean? Or all these things. We just don't talk like that anymore. I think God wants us to hear his word in our dialect. We were at this conference Steve was talking about, and some of the guys, the, you know, the student guys, they're, they're uh, so immature. And uh, they were reading at the dinner table Hawaiian pigeon, the Hawaiian pigeon version of the Bible. You want a version of the Bible to uh, you know, entertain you, and that's keep your attention, look up the Hawaiian pigeon version and just read John 3.16. So Peter's being transformed because he's, he's speaking to people now. He's doing what Jesus knew he was going to do. He was going to preach the first gospel sermon. There are a couple other places where we know that the Holy Spirit is in him because I want you to see here, we're going to skip over Acts 2.36 there. Um, well, actually, that's no. When he preached that first gospel message, he said this in Acts 2.36. This is a bold statement. Remember last week we talked about his courageous spirit. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This was a spirit-filled message because they all said, what shall we do? Peter said, I'll tell you what you got to do. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's what Peter told him in Acts 2. Now I want you to see in Acts 3, Peter did two more things that really show us that he was maturing. He was becoming the rock. Remember when they healed that lame man, then they got called up in front of the the authorities from it, and uh, they said, how did you do this? and, And Peter said, Peter said, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. Now, earlier, Peter might have said, yeah, yeah, that's what we did. Look at us. But he gave God all the glory. He said, by Jesus, this man is standing before you well. You want to know when you'll start seeing transformation and maturity in your life is when you stop taking the credit and give it to God. When you stop trying to steal the glory of God and give it it to him. It's not about what you've done or what I can do or how we look or how we talk or whatever 
It's about what he's doing through us. The second instance and last thing I'll talk about in Acts 15, there's a dispute. There's a Jerusalem council, and they're arguing about the Gentiles. All these Gentiles are coming into the church now, and they're like, should they become Jews before they become Christians? There were a whole lot of people saying, yeah, they've got to be circumcised, those men. They need to obey the law just like we have, all these technical laws. Paul about got into a fight over it. Bible says that Paul and Barnabas, uh, they were, uh, the, the Bible says there, there was no small dissension and debate with these Judaizers. You know, Paul dealt with these guys his whole ministry, and he was ready to fight for them. I think he would have fought them. But here's what I want to get to. In verse 7, the Bible says, and after there had been much debate. What? Peter stood up after much debate? This isn't the Peter we knew. Peter, we knew, would have spoke up long before the debate. He would have chopped the ear off long before we had a chance to negotiate. This isn't the pebble, the leaf. This is the rock. Peter listened. After much debate, he stood up and said, okay, I've got something to say. That's a sign of maturity, is when you don't have to speak first, when you can listen. That's what Jesus did for Peter Peter said, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And Peter had, so have I. And some of you have too. Is the Lord good? He is good. He is good. And that pebble became a stone and so can you. Let's stand and pray. Lord God, thank you for this message of transformation. I pray that we too would allow your Holy Spirit to use us in the mission that you have for us, that we might be changed, that we might become the men and women of God that you've called us to be and that you know we can be. I pray, God, for each person here that we would, that we would examine our lives and surrender fully to you and what you want to do with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have a decision.